1: You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones, and today I'm talking to the journalist Tom Stevenson, who's been a contributor to the LRB since 2015 and has a piece in the new issue of the paper, Reporting from Ukraine, as well as one in the previous issue, looking at the history of sanctions in the 20th century, a review of The Economic Weapon, the Rise of Sanctions as a Tool of Modern War by Nicholas Mulder. Hello, Tom, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, it's it's a pleasure. So it is now day 34 of Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And when you were in Kiev a couple of weeks ago, it looked as if the Russian bombardment of the capital, as you wrote in your piece, might be going to intensify. But more recently, the Kremlin's claimed that it's now focusing on operations in the Donbass and the east of Ukraine. Has there been an apparent shift in Russian strategy? I mean, it's hard to say, obviously, who knows what, what Putin and his generals are thinking. But does it look as if there has? Well, there's definitely been some shift in the situation on the ground. There's no doubt about that.
0: The extent to which that represents a shift in Russian strategy versus the sort of natural course of the war, the balance of equipment and forces, remains somewhat open to my mind. Certainly, when I was there, or even even a week or 10 days ago, it was still the case that putative attempts to further seal off the capital were on the cards for the Russian military. They had established positions in Makarev, slightly to the to the west of the city, and appear to be making some gains to the east of Kiev as well. Uh, at present, there have been limited successes for the Ukrainian side. And so positions that previously appeared to be well dug in for the Russians, uh, most prominently in European, for example, in a suburb to the northwest of the city, uh, are now either very heavily disputed or have in fact seen some ground lost back to uh, Ukrainian military forces. It, it does seem that the, the, the cascade, really, of uh, logistical failures and, and, in some cases, straightforward military operational failures that Russia has experienced has, has caught up with it, uh, that the supply lines have been increasingly stretched and that those putative advances now seem somewhat less likely, at least in the very short term, it still remains to be seen how that will play out, but at, in this moment in time, Ukrainian forces appear to have taken back a,
1: a very modest amount, but a, but, a, but a small amount nonetheless of ground. And, and Putin's response to that has, I mean, he's making these claims about well, that stage of the operation, whatever he may mean by that, is is complete. So now we're going to focus in the in the east in the east of the country, and presumably, and that's where I mean, the bulk of the Ukrainian army, most of the Ukrainian soldiers, are in the east of ukraine and is there a danger if if russia were to move everything there and intensify there is there a danger that they could encircle the ukrainian army in the in the east and it could then get very nasty in a in yet another way
0: yes i mean that certainly remains a danger uh, and again we're faced with the problem of to what extent are we seeing sort of straightforward military failure and to what extent are we seeing a shift in strategy um the rhetoric is very much, as you say, one of a shift in strategy, or even that this was the plan all along from the Russian side, That's that's been the rhetoric. Whether or not we see sort of in, f- further encirclement, I mean, the, the great gains that Russia made in the East were also in the earliest stages. I mean, in, in the Sumi province, for example, Russia experienced sort of quite considerable advances, military victories and so on, and, and in the surrounding area around Kharkiv was very much the same. That's what really allowed the bombardment, the artillery bombardment of, of Kharkiv. That that appears also to have somewhat slowed in pace. Uh, so I don't think that we can sort of straightforwardly say that we're seeing a shift from the central or the Kiev theater to the east uh, in that sense. And then also again, we haven't touched on it quite yet, but in, in the south, uh, there too, Russia has experienced some setbacks. So I would be at, well, I am somewhat cautious about saying that what we're seeing is is purely a, a strategic shift. Of course, it is entirely possible, given the resources that are still available to the Russian military, that a short period of regrouping and retrenchment will will be followed by intensification of the violence in the east. That seems perfectly possible, indeed, perhaps even
1: likely. And the way you describe it in in your piece, that getting from from Poland to Kiev was not exactly easy, but it wasn't, especially difficult journey, the bus to Lviv and, and a train train to Kiev and those the corridors or routes into western and central Ukraine from Europe are still very much open for people to leave and for weapons and other supplies to get in. And presumably that continues to be be the case. Yes, that is the case. I, I think it's one of the sort of remarkable
0: features of this war and one of the the important ones as well has been that Ukraine has managed to keep open the supply the civil supply lines the transport networks and so on to a degree which certainly I didn't expect um, at the very beginning of the war uh, and even while I was there it was still uncertain exactly how long it would still be possible for trains the road network and so on to to continue functioning in the way that it did in the earliest days but but in fact it has uh, one way or another, the, the Ukrainian security forces, the civil infrastructure and so on has, has, has kept functioning. And when I passed into the country, I, I passed overland from Poland. That was relatively straightforward and it was sort of clear in advance that it would be for, this, for the reason that the enormous exodus of refugees required this, this string of buses and trains and so on, all transporting people west. And I anticipated, and in fact it was the case, that it would be quite easy simply to take the returning buses and trains and that they would be essentially empty on the way back to go and go and pick up more people who were fleeing. And that's exactly how it turned out. So uh, I took a bus from Krakow, in fact, um, in order to cross the border, travel to the border and across the border, really, really quite quickly, uh, accompanied by very few people, all of them with one exception, men who were, either re-entering or who who were going back, as it were, to, in some sense, not necessarily to join the resistance, but to, to be in the country for one reason or another. And, that, and it was relatively easy to cross the border. Going in the other direction, of course, was clearly a logjam. As soon as one passed into Ukraine, you could see great lines of trucks, of cars, of buses, and of course, of people. It was the dead of night when I crossed the border, and there were Really, hundreds of, of women women, and children. And it is women and children, of course. Men aren't, weren't, and aren't allowed to leave the country if they're of military age and in reasonable health. So you could see really masses of women standing, waiting, trying to keep warm for the most part, um, who are still trying to trying to cross into Poland, even though the Polish authorities and European authorities in general have been quite welcoming and ready to facilitate the journey. The sheer number of people, millions of people. Means that it's it's not an easy journey. It's an arduous journey, nonetheless, and one which you know might entail ten hours or
1: longer waiting in the, in the cold in order to get across that border. And did you find that when you left? Because I'm not sure you say in the piece how how you left the country. Did you follow the same route backwards? I did. I more or less uh, reversed tracks.
0: I briefly considered trying to go through Romania instead, but I sort of reversed the journey more or less and found that that was very much the case. When I left Kiev, the situation around the city was still much more uncertain than it is today. It, it was unclear to what extent it would remain frozen, as it has. It's often like this in in any conflict, when there are there are rumours floating around all the time of impending advances, and it's, it's, it's very difficult to know when to take them seriously and when not to. Uh, so that was still there. But by that time, I would say the majority of those who were going to leave the city had not all of course but so by two weeks in most of the perhaps half of the population of of kiev for example who were planning to leave the city had left
1: and i mean that is an astonishing movement of people isn't it because it's a
0: yes yes it's remarkable yeah i mean millions yeah millions of people indeed um left very very quickly from the capital city and from the east as well where it was somewhat more difficult so you know I, i i speak in the piece, for example, of meeting um, a young girl, she was 17, who had been alone in Kharkiv when the war broke out, had been staying alone and had remained there under really under heavy shelling while, the, while much of the city was being destroyed around her on her own for more than two weeks. And then had, had during one of the, the breaks had managed to evacuate as part of an, an evacuation group also on her own across the country and then was making her way west and then crossing into Poland alone didn 't have a passport uh, and that 's just one story among as you say millions do you know if she got across the border? She did get across the border in fact, I crossed with her, and uh, so she she made it over and she was you know she was treated well um, by the Polish border guard and so on. She was wanting to make her way to Prague, where her mother was, and when we crossed back, she asked me if I spoke Czech and I said, well they don 't speak Czech and Polish, but also no unfortunately i don 't. She was worried about having to find, you know, trying to find transport even within Europe, which even though much of it is free, there's the sheer number of people again. And the, just the, the difficulty of organising it is quite hard. I mean, I, I made sure she got a ticket to Prague, but hopefully she made
1: it. It's not too much of a journey. So. And so, so there's weapons that are being supplied in such large numbers from Western Europe, including the UK. I mean, especially the ones that a lot of wars seem to have their signature weapons, that the the scuds in the Gulf and so on, the, the javelin, the javelin seems to be the signature weapon of, of this war. Yes. I mean, it,
0: it certainly seems to me that in military terms, Russian officials and intelligence and so on seem to have been working with a mistaken picture of the internal situation in Ukraine, a degree of hubris, as it were. But but hubris, obviously, is not the whole story. Um, and the fact is that since 2014, 2015, the United States began supplying small arms, body armor, but also uh, anti-tank weapons, basically very sophisticated rocket launchers. Javelins and laws, Spain also produces them, Scandinavian countries produce them. And the US began supplying these and supplying the training for these um, since 2014, 2015, during the first Russian incursions. And in, in, as, exactly as you say, these have really become the signature munition of this war. Um, to the extent that Russian, that Ukrainian, excuse me, Ukrainian military forces have had battlefield successes against the Russian army, it has mostly been as a result of these anti-tank weapons. Russia has lost an enormous number of tanks and um, personnel carriers in this conflict. Most of them, to be fair, have been abandoned. Most of them have run out of fuel, or the soldiers have gotten lost and have abandoned them. But they've also lost them to, to these weapons, to end laws, to javelins, and so on. So as we look back... In hindsight, the, the provision of, of military aid and training to Ukraine over the last few years preceding this conflict starts to look very prescient. In 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 volume, in terms of the sort of the the dollar value of the equipment that was supplied to Ukraine before the conflict, it was quite limited. But it's turned out to be the kind of equipment that is extremely well suited to to countering Russia's military forces in this kind of war. And now of course we're seeing those huge lines of trucks and so on entering Poland and then leaving Poland and being uh, and, and resupplying the Ukrainian armed forces, all of which carrying Western weapons, anti-tank weapons, anti-aircraft weapons and so on. Uh, they quite literally never stop. It's, it's, it's a constant line in and out of the country. And they have played a very, very important role in this conflict. There's no doubt they have really managed to check the sort of the tank advance, the tank advances that Russia has had. Uh, so I think that's a, a very significant part of this conflict. And that, that combined with the fact that Russia has not been able to bring its air force to bear in the way that we might expect, sort of to clear ground advances and so on, has been a, a very peculiar featu- feature of this fighting. And, and it seems to have been, at least in the small scale, at the local level, decisive in the in the battlefield victories that Ukrainian forces
1: have managed to pull off. And in terms of the the, the anti-tank weapons, I mean, in some ways it's slightly... Well, clearly, some people did expect there to be another a tank war in Europe. But it, did the UK have a massive stockpile of anti-tank weapons sitting around in a warehouse in Bister or whatever that it can then ship out to Ukraine? And that seems a slightly surprising because who who were the who were the British government you know de- defending us from with these their stockpiles of anti-tank weapons?
0: Yes, uh, I think that is an, an interesting point, and uh, I think it's in some ways a testament to the. The, the sheer extent of, of the military industrial base in all in all of the advanced Western countries. Um, in, in, I think in each case, I mean, not just the UK, but even in Spain, for example, it's sort of surprising that Spain has quite advanced anti-tank weaponry uh, in, sort of in production, ready to go. They certainly haven't been produced over, in, in the last month. So uh, the sheer fact that governments have been so willing to, to subsidise, to support high technology industry through military companies, I think is sort of has turned out to be quite quite interesting in this case that there's there's been enough money floating around enough funding going around for research and for and for and for production even of of weapons which uh, as you rightly say few really expected that spain or the uk would have to use so i mean certainly the U- the uk for example has run for some years military drills in scandinavia uh, with norway with sweden and with the us and so on other countries which 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 wargame out potential conflicts. They call it High North, the High North Theater, which wargame out um, you know conflicts actually with Russia. And it seems like producing weapons both to stimulate high-technology industry and also for those, those wargaming exercises, for those dreams perhaps which until recently seemed quite eccentric on the part of military planners of conflicts with Russian tanks. And the fact that enough of those have been produced and now have been supplied to Ukraine uh, has turned out to be sort of a, a factor in this war that we, we might not have expected. Presumably there's now going to be new contracts, perhaps there already are new contracts in the works for, for further production of these weapons. Um, but the, the timeline is such that they, um, they haven't been very quickly um, you know, brought together and then shipped out. Although maybe they will be as the, as the war drags on.
1: And look, I mean, the other thing is a lot of the Western European arms manufacturers have been doing a roaring trade with Russia over recent years, if you look at the the quantities that France and Germany initially and have been selling to to Russia, and presumably that's those contracts have been cancelled now.
0: Yes, I mean I, I'm not certain about the Italian case, but in in Germany, the German arms industry was actually making quite significant contributions to to Russia, which most of which one imagines were primarily they were of interest for, for, for technological reasons and so on. There's still some quite serious problems within Russian industry, Russian technology and military industry, which were supposed to have been solved by import substitution and perhaps will have to be in the future. Uh, because at this point, obviously, it's, it's completely impossible for, for Germany to be supplying weapons to, to Russia, indeed to be making most kinds of financial transactions except for oil and gas. That's something which now looks extremely embarrassing, which certainly German anal- analysts and um, and politicians the ones that I'm familiar with, at least now, now look on as um, as a significant problem, uh, in a way that they didn't until until quite
1: recently. But presumably, as with the British arms trade, they're still you know selling vast quantities to Saudi Arabia, who are you know, the Saudi war on Yemen has been going on for however many years. And what 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 is happening to Mariupol now has been happening to cities in Yemen for for years, using munitions that have been provided and sold by the by western european and american firms who seem totally unembarrassed indeed
0: the, the point has been made a number of times that uh, the sort of destruction we're seeing in mariupol in, in kharkiv in eastern ukrainian cities espe- especially is not news to anyone who's followed the current conflict in syria that's always the comparison that's made but one might just as well make the comparison of uh, about yemen especially where air power is involved um uh, also in Syria, the, the majority of the destruction was caused by air power, not by artillery, as it has been in, in Eastern Ukraine for the most part. But uh, the, sort, the the destruction that's been has been has been levelled at Yemen is really incomparable. In fact, it's far greater than we're seeing than we have seen so far in Ukraine. That conflict, of course, doesn't contain even the small risk of nuclear exchange. But nonetheless, I mean, in terms of the number of lives lost, you know, hundreds of thousands versus thousands. It's an, an It's incompar- been an incomparably bloody conflict, albeit over a longer timescale, and mostly ignored, very little reported, partly for logistical reasons, but also partly because it is embarrassing politically, not just for arms companies, but also because, in the case of the war in Yemen, we really shouldn't speak of it as a Saudi attack on Yemen. It has been, in every respect, an Anglo-American and Saudi operation, uh, of course, with the UAE involved and so on. Uh, the, 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 the kind of violence which has been Inflicted on really the whole of Yemen would not have been even remotely possible without the participation, the direct participation in refueling, in targeting, in intelligence, in involvement in the command rooms we've seen from from, uh, American and also British soldiers and officials. Um, It's frankly a scandal, and we ought not to allow the the terrible situation we're seeing unfold in this moment distract us from as much as we have done.
1: Yeah. And the calls for, in the West, for the, you know, Rus- Russians need to do, Russian, ordinary Russian people need to do more to protest against the awful things their government are doing. I mean, the the supine response of the British and American general public, you know, in which I include myself, um, to, to what's happening to the things that are being done by our governments in Yemen, that the idea that... That Russian citizens who face far greater reprisals from their governments for protesting should take to the streets in a way that we simply are not, in response to our own governments committing similar war crimes. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm in awe of
0: the Russian opposition that there has been, and it obviously it should be it goes without saying it should be supported. Uh, that and. I, to, to to go out and and conduct anti-war activism in Russia in this moment is obviously incredibly dangerous and uh, and those who are doing it should be applauded in every respect. To make comparisons of this kind is often sort of sneered at um, or referred to as, uh, as as some sort of distracting tactic, but it, it 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 really genuinely isn't. We're not simply bringing picking out some other historical crime that's taken place. We're talking about in this moment an ongoing conflict which. Is only continues solely because of the participation of the British and American governments and militaries, and diplomatic cover for it, and so on. That is still happening right now, and uh, and it it ought to be resisted, um, not only as well as, but in the same breath as uh, as solidarity is expressed with uh, with Ukrainians defending against uh, the Russian
1: attack. And peace talks have begun. A new round of peace talks have begun today in Istanbul with under erdogan's auspices is there any reason to hope that anything's going to come out of them the negotiations have been i think a very interesting
0: story they've been i mean certainly they've been fraught um uh, even in the relatively early stages there was the story which was quite poorly covered because it seems like very few people know what happened of uh, a member of the ukrainian delegation for example who was killed who was shot it was reported that it was the ukrainians who'd killed them and then it was actually the russians uh that espionage was afoot And the the whole affair sort of remains somewhat cloudy, to me at least. Subsequently, we've seen a story come out yesterday about uh, perhaps a poisoning of part of of one of the delegations, or it was just an illness again, these things floating around. And I think that those stories, they sort of capture something of the mood of the negotiations, which is that uh, they, they remain so surrounded in uncertainty that both... Sides, the Ukrainian and the Russian, are putting out briefings about what they may or may not be willing to accept, what the other side is and isn't doing, and some of them quite positive. I mean, even in the, I think, the fourth round of the negotiations, which was already a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were there was sort of both sides making you know making noises that things were going in the right direction. Then they stall and go forward, and it's the same again here. So we've seen the Russian side brief that they would be willing to accept even Ukrainian membership of the European Union in exchange for guarantees of neutrality for Ukraine not joining NATO. Sort of a major step, and it's hard to know exactly how seriously to take any of those proposals. It's it's one of those things where everything's happening, the, the information flow is quite closely um, contained. In my view, of course, there, there must be a deal at some point, if the war is going to end, Um It could, of course, drag on, and that's the great danger. The great danger is that it does drag on. I mean, we speak of negotiations between Ukraine and Russia, and that's right, and that 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 is what's happening. But it also, we certainly can't forget that the U.S., Europe, are now pouring in arms. The United States is providing live intelligence for the fighting for the Ukrainian side. That's very significant. That that means that the U.S., Europe, the UK are are in a sense parties to the conflict in a limited way, and are therefore and therefore must be involved in, to some extent even in an advisory capacity in the negotiations. Um, we've seen not just the mystery surrounding the negotiations, but also uh, some degree of pageantry. So the Versailles Declaration on um, Fast-Tracking EU Membership, which was made to great fanfare and then swiftly followed by an actual EU decision not to fast-track Ukrainian membership. So a very public instance of performance versus reality in that case. The signs from the Ukrainian government, we've seen, for example, President Zelensky say that Ukraine is perfectly willing to to discuss a neutral position. Russia seems quite open to that. As I said, Russia's mooted the idea of acceptance of Ukraine, you know, having some degree of political autonomy, at the very least, in exchange for relinquishing any NATO ambitions.
1: That's critically important. Um, It needs to be watched but presumably there, i mean there's the, the territorial question that zelensky is still saying we will you know no people no territory no concessions of those kinds but the chances of russia abandoning i mean presumably crime I and mean, there's no i mean ukraine's not trying to reclaim back crimea presumably but even those that lugansk and um, and donetsk that yeah, Russia's not going to just walk away from certainly them, not it? I, mean, I think it would be
0: really impossible for putin or for any Russian leader to uh, at this point to have launched an operation of this kind and then to end up relinquishing even their claims to special status at least for for the for the donbass regions uh, that's not something that they're going to be willing to accept we've seen that Russia has as you said signaled through the military that the operation's going well, and the central goal of uh, liberating the Donbass region is going to be fulfilled, that that may well be a signal that that, that is, their in fact, their main goal for these negotiations. Uh, I mean, the positive, the optimistic view would be, unfortunately, the optimistic view would be that Russia would be willing to accept some sort of special status ceding of the Donbass by Ukraine and so on, if Ukraine were, were were to agree to that as a condition for for ceasefires and so on. That's not something which is, is pleasant to for Ukrainians to contemplate. But given how committed the Russian side seems to be to it, it may well be the, the main path to trying to get towards a ceasefire.
1: And, and Biden appeared to be calling for regime change in Moscow, which is obviously a, an escalation of a kind, although I was at the State Department who then Said no, he, he didn't mean it, and he's now said yes, I did mean it. But again, presumably, that's a similar sort of performance to what you're saying about the Versailles Declaration. And it's one thing for Biden to stand up and say we want to get rid of Putin, but there's not actually any serious intention on the, by the Americans to do that.
0: Indeed, and I think Biden has said that he was sort of speaking from the heart when he said that, which isn't much of a defense for a for, uh, for head of state. But nonetheless, I mean, the, we've seen talk. From commentators more right, than than officials of, of the importance of regime change in in Moscow as a, as an outcome of this war, and that's clearly completely unhelpful in in the context of actually negotiating some sort of settlement that brings that brings down the level of the violence at the very least, um, and that's uh, uh, definitely something to watch from the United States and the European side. I mean. We, uh, you know, we we saw that even I mean, President Zelensky gave an interview to The Economist in which he said explicitly that there are elements in the West in favour of a long war in order to weaken Russia at the expense of Ukraine's destruction. Uh, that they were, uh, to use his words, using Ukraine like a shield. That I think must be avoided. You know, it's it's it, what he also said it was unclear which side of that the UK landed on. So you know, he's hedging in some sense there. But it's it, it's really. It's it's something that must be avoided. It, to the extent that the European countries and the United States are involved in the negotiations, are involved diplomatically, which they are, uh, it it cannot be in any sense to to move the, the the war in the direction of prolonging the conflict for for any reason, and certainly not for political aims in Russia, which, in my view, at least, are, are really quite fanciful.
1: This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading The London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link below. And of course, the thing that the West has been officially and noisily doing since since almost the beginning is a question of sanctions and your piece in the previous issue about the history of sanctions which rather implies that they've never actually worked as a they've never achieved the aims that they've been been established to do and with the the current the extent to which hydrocarbons are exempt from the current sanctions on Russia implies that they're they have little chance of being effective as long as Europe is still buying vast quantities of oil and gas from from Russia
0: yes i my view on the question of sanctions and effectiveness is perhaps slightly different than that. I mean, I, I think that it's we have to be quite careful when formulating the questions of how, of sanctions and effectiveness because it really goes to the core of what the intentions are. And uh, when you read sort of former officials who've worked on sanctions regimes, uh, especially on Iran and Cuba, for example, in the U.S., they speak quite openly about the the underlying logic for them. And it's one which is, you know, in in terms of the imposition of pain, but not always necessarily for specific goals. So if we treat sanctions, if we look at sanctions um, cases in Iran and Cuba as the, the the most prominent prominent cases, and we and we say, well, the U.S. instituted a very harsh regime of sanctions. It did not succeed in um, causing the downfall of the Islamic Republic of Iran or of or of the Cuban government, revolutionary government in, in Cuba, and therefore they failed. I think that's, that's sort of tempting analysis, but it, it does miss something. And what it misses is that if the goal is the imposition of pain, that's not always a matter of um, coercion. It's also a matter simply of punishment. And so I, I speak in the sanctions piece, for example, about this underlying logic of sanctions often being quite similar to that of torture. Again, you know, the imposition of pain, the infliction of pain, but... Torture is not always about gaining a confession. Very often...
1: Almost never, in fact. Yes,
0: yeah. indeed. I would say almost never. I mean, I, I lived and worked in Egypt and reported from Egypt for a long time, where torture is really the modus operandi at the police. And the vast majority of the torture that goes on, for example, in Egypt, is not about eliciting any kind of behavioural change or, or, or confession of information. It is punishment. And... If punishment and discipline are at the core of sanctions, and we might even expand that even even here to Russia, uh, if if there isn't really an expectation that sanctions are going to say cause the end of the war, which I think even even the the most blustering optimist would probably think that that's a stretch too far, then it is about discipline and about punishment. And if that is the case, then we have to be careful about how we speak about effectiveness. Sanctions may not be effective as a tool of political. Change of causing a transformation in that sense, but they have an effect nonetheless.
1: Yeah, but I suppose if the purpose, I mean, I suppose Vietnam is another example where you know after the US lost lost that war and then imposed sanctions as a to you know as a, as a form of revenge or or as you say punishment. But is that that doesn't seem a worthy aim? The idea to and the question of it is who who are you punishing? Because I, I mean, I certainly know at least one. Um, a Ukrainian who works in Europe who's now no longer able to send money to her son who's still in Ukraine because she used to send money through a Russian bank and the sanctions now mean she's no longer able to do that. I mean, if if it's not going to hasten the end of the war, if it's not the idea of who is being punished, is it punishing the Kremlin or is it punishing, punishing... Ordinary Russians, or yes, it doesn't seem particularly worthy aim. And again, the comparison to torture makes it seem even even less worthy. That they, you you want to punish your enemy, you want to keep their economy small, you want to prevent them becoming more of a threat to you.
0: Yes, I think that's the critical point. Um, So the piece starts off from reviewing a book by Nicholas Mulder on the history of economic sanctions, which tracks the genesis back really to the First World War and the interwar period uh, as the moment of. uh, of, of the creation of the sanctions instruments on an international scale. And one might dispute whether that's the case or whether in fact what we, what we see now really developed much later. But nonetheless, there, there are interesting lessons to learn there. And his book makes quite clear that from the beginning, the conception of, of sanctions, which was then economic blockade, was the main terminology that was used, really did have the idea at its heart that the target was to hold an enemy population as hostage. The target really was quite explicitly the general population of an enemy state. And really, that's what we've seen obtain in Cuba, in Iran, in Iraq in the 1990s, um, much more recently in Venezuela, many other cases. It's, It's really taken as an expectation by policymakers that the elites, certainly the government in these countries, may be inconvenienced, but they'll still be able to acquire fine gloves and spirits and so on, should they wish to do so. But the general population will not, and it is the general population that suffers. And I mean, these these were spoken sanctions in the in the earliest days were qu- spoken quite uh, openly as a weapon of, of starvation, as a starvation of the of, of an enemy population. And I, it seems fairly obvious. I think we've seen no cases where where that where that hasn't been the case. That whatever the putative targets and however much we, we may talk about smart sanctions or targeted sanctions, what in fact ends up happening is a drop in living standards, even in caloric intake in the general population, and most especially in the mass of the poor. And in, in that case, that's what's hap- this is what's happening, I think, here. What's, what's likely to happen? To the extent that, that sanctions are effective, that is, to the extent that they, they really do work in the way that policymakers want them to work, it will be by inflicting pain on the general population in Russia, in this case.
1: And, and is that in the hope of fermenting dissatisfaction and, and revolution because again it doesn't never the opposite effect that as in a, in a sense we've seen that was possibly what Putin's hope in Ukraine that you that the suffering imposed by the 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 bombing and the, and the killing of, of the invasion would cause Ukraine to say we would anything to stop the war please let's have let's have a Russian a Moscow facing government or a Russian puppet government because that's but the the reverse has been the has, has been the case I mean are there any historical examples where population have said we're fed up of these sanctions therefore we're going to overthrow our government and no
0: there haven't been any and indeed and i think that that is the justification certainly to the extent that the that it is acknowledged now we 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 speak much more carefully about things than they did in the interwar period that it is acknowledged that really the, the the aim is to reduce the caloric intake of the general population you know to target ordinary people as it were to the extent that's acknowledged, it is, as you said, justified by the idea that this will ferment a change and eventually ferment a political change. But I, I think it would be very naive for us to take that on face value at this point. I mean, it, it, there are simply a, a list of examples where the, the opposite has happened and there's been regime entrenchment rather than regime change in, in every case without any counterexample. And so I think it would be either... Sanctioneers are extremely naive, or they they are aware of this. I think I I take the darker view that it's 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 simply a fig leaf justification that um, that the the temptation of discipline, the temptation of punishment, the temptation of being seen to have to have done something, to have reached for a tool that is seen as a reasonable alternative to military violence, even if it is starvation of ordinary people who often, certainly in the case of Russia, have an extremely limited uh, role in choosing Russian policy. Very, very limited. Um, We may say that the Putin regime is relatively popular. That's fair enough. But we we, we can't argue, I think, that the general population in Russia has much influence on the course of policy, certainly in the course of wartime policy. And um, and so, yeah, I, I think that really is, that's a justification, something that makes us feel better and it's it's remarkable to me how widespread the acceptance of this is. Whatever one thinks of sanctions, the, the fact that they are so widely perceived as basically a reasonable option in statecraft is quite remarkable, I think, given their actual history.
1: I, mean, I suppose one way in which they can can be used, potentially, which we've sort of seen nearly happen in in Venezuela this month, that, that as with torture, one of the things, if you, you inflict pain, you can promise to relieve it. So you, you said so that and has happened in that the US was saying, I mean, it seems to have gone quiet, you may know more about this than I do, that the, a couple of weeks ago that they were saying to Venezuela, well, if you'll increase oil production and sell oil to people who are no longer buying it from the, from Russia, we will then lift, some, we may then lift some sanctions. So it's creating a bargaining tool.
0: That's true. There's, there's some merit to that. Although even in that case, we see that it isn't purely that, that we'll lift the pressure in terms of sanctions, but also politically. I mean, uh, my understanding, at least, is that behind the scenes that there's the idea of letting go of supporting whatever remaining uh, front political opposition there is to the Venezuelan government as well as a, as a side of that. So relieving sanctions, relieving the general pressure, the general oppositional pressure put on Venezuela uh, because of the expediency of the moment with regard to international energy supplies and so forth. But yes, I mean, that, that again, that I think is less of of an obvious fraud in terms of a justification for sanctions than the we think it will actually foment revolution argument. But the idea certainly is there that w- when you inflict pain in this way, just as this torture does, you have the ability to offer that you'll that to put yourself in a position where you might gain favour by by no longer continuing to driving the knife, as it were.
1: The, ob- the opposite end of the scale of, of, of one scale, from from sanctions which appear to be reasonable, even if they're actually rather more brutal, um, than they often claim to be. There's the 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 threat of of nuclear war, which has arisen again. And in fact, you wrote about um, you wrote about nuclear weapons in in the LRB in February, and it was. I mean, it seems to have receded a bit, but maybe that's just because we sort of get used to things so quickly. But is there? I mean, what, how much of a threat, in your view, of of uh, the use of nuclear weapons is there from from the current conflict? Well,
0: it's quite a question. Obviously,
1: I, I don't pretend to have any special knowledge on this. But in
0: my view, the, the the simple sort of broad strokes description of the conflict at the moment is suffices to to demonstrate the danger. We have a situation where Russia has launched a major a war of aggression, a major land war in the former Soviet periphery, and the United States, Europe, the UK are supplying weapons and intelligence support and various other kinds of support to the armed resistance. That conflict already contains within it the germs of something very dangerous. It's, it's already terribly dangerous. It's already extremely destructive, horrifically destructive, in fact, for Ukrainians. But it, there's, there's, there's simply no getting around the fact that it does contain the risk of escalation, even though we may judge it to be small... Because the effects are so terribly damaging, any risk of escalation is sort of unacceptable. You know, even if we talk, a, even if we we judge and assess that the risk of a, an accident, of uh, a missile gone astray, or a miscalculation, a miscalculation on on the side of one of the parties, thinking they can get away with something that they can't, thinking or, or misidentifying a plane, uh, which has happened a number of times, that sort of thing. So long as, so long as the balance of forces is as it is, always remains. And so the longer this conflict goes on, even though every day we may judge that the, the chance of something breaking out into, into something that could potentially balloon into an into a nuclear exchange, we might judge that that's very small. But the longer that it goes on, even if it, even if it amounts to a sort of a very small fraction, the way that risk assessors, for example, might look at it, which seems absurd given given the effects we're talking about, the, the fact that the nuclear forces exist as they do, in the ways that they do, that the missiles are trained as they are, targeted as they are, um, in various states of red- readiness and so on, exists means that we must pay attention to it at all times. Uh, there's there's n- sort of no greater imperative. Sometimes we, we speak about not allowing such things to overwhelm other considerations, considerations of, of human dignity, of moral imperatives and so on. But when we're, when we're speaking about thousands of thermonuclear warheads, there, there really can't be any justification for taking any chances. And, and that alone, I think, suffices to, to say that we, we must take all steps possible to, to, to bring forward a ceasefire. That, that should be the case, of course, in any case, because the war is horrible enough on its own. But with, with that shadow hanging over it, it's impossible to take any other course.
1: And that, that Medvedev... Dmitry Medvedev said recently that there were only four circumstances under which Russia would ever use nuclear weapons, which seemed to be dialing back a bit from Putin's rhetoric a couple of weeks ago. And is that? But then again, is that another case of you know, Biden says one thing, the State Department says another, Macron says one thing, the EU says another. That there's the the president sort of grandstands, and then and apparently, and then a more reasonable person, or well, in Medvedev's case, more reasonable person says actually this isn't going to happen. I mean, is that something that we can take reassurance from? That, or is it all just political rhetoric and it's, it's very, it doesn't really change anything?
0: Well, to, to some extent, um, it, it's, it's always good to know that there is some degree of plurality, at least of, of propaganda. <laughs> but I mean, there's a concept in, in nuclear strategy well established of st- strategic ambiguity, the idea that um, nuclear powers should never be entirely clear about when or why they will use nuclear weapons at least in sort of in diplomatic and political terms. And I, I think the most likely explanation for that is is strategic ambiguity, that uh it's it's a good idea, as it were, not to lay down very, very clearly the the precise conditions under which a state would use nuclear weapons. So you you find that even if one element of the state appears to be doing that, it appears to say, well these are the conditions under which we would we would launch uh nuclear weapons. You still always have some other organ saying the same thing. And I might add that um the, the uk the us do exactly the same thing that you have conflicting accounts um or or simply accounts that we know aren't the case so most states claim i think almost all nuclear states claim that only the head of state can can authorize nuclear uh nuclear strikes the use of nuclear weapons and we know that isn't that isn't true we know from declassified records that in every case where it has been claimed that only the head of state can use them in fact there's a degree of delegation uh for the simple reason that under the extreme conditions where nuclear, the use of nuclear weapons might be contemplated, it might very well be the case that the head of state is either incapacitated or, or has been killed and so on. So that wouldn't be practical.
1: Well, like, like the story that supposedly if the commanders of Britain's nuclear submarines don't hear the Today programme... <laughs> right, to exactly. An, an apocryphal one, but yeah, instructive. Exactly. And else has been <laughs> yeah. proved not to be true because there was... that. You know, a few months ago, there was some radio four had some problem and the nukes were not launched. But also, that it does. I mean, there's that. Um, I can't remember if you mentioned him in your piece or it was another piece that um, that this um, Stephen Schwartz, who on his Twitter feed, sort of every day, it's on this day in 1960 there was a nuclear near miss when a, a plane came down, or and and the number of incidents during the Cold War and presumably since where it came very cl- cl- much closer to a to a nuclear exchange than would like to think. And often what has happened is that there in a lot of cases isn't this right that the that the person because as it were is not that the, the US president doesn't press the big red button to fire all the bombs and similarly the Russian president doesn't do that that there is someone who's on the submarine or in the plane who has to who actually has to turn the key press the button fire the missiles. And in the cases where it looked as if it might be going to happen, and it didn't. It was often because the person who would actually have the responsibility for pressing the button, as it were, has refused to do it.
0: That's right, yes. A a sort of a degree of, and in some cases, simply a degree of scepticism that the situation, it can't be the case if that's true. Uh, So, I mean, you're right. I mean, the the list of near misses, most of them just due to accidents or malfunctions, is really quite terrifying. I mean, there, there there are cases where the entire... Apparatus of the warning system of the United States has been triggered by the moon. That's, I mean, absolutely remarkable. I mean, nuclear s- smaller stations which are supposed to de- detect missile launches have been tricked by flocks of migrating geese. Uh, during the Cold War, uh, a B- uh, heavy, heavy strategic, bo- American heavy strategic bomber uh, went down and, and dropped three nuclear weapons, two of which hit a Spanish village. Fortunately, did not detonate. That's absolutely. These are just the accidents. These are the the anomalous cases which you know you can't possibly give any explanation for, which seem absurd, seem almost fictional. And then on top of that, I mean, even even in the nineties, a, a considerable number of false alarm exchanges. But there's a story which stands out to me as well, which is of uh, Zbigniew Brze- Brzezinski receiving a call, being woken up in the middle of the night, and being told that. The NORAD and the warning systems had detected a massive launch of the Soviet nuclear arsenal at the United States, and him simply refusing to believe it, simply saying, "Well, that 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 doesn't that doesn't add up to me. It, it it can't be the case." Now, th- that's a case of sort of basic reasonableness triumphing in a moment of adversity. But the idea of a sleepy Brzezinski being responsible for the for the safety of all human life uh, should give us some degree of pause. I think
1: yeah but we can well only hope that that reasonableness prevails, and also in ukraine long long before it comes anywhere near the question of of nuclear exchange.
0: indeed, and uh, in these cases it's it's one where I tend to take quite a deterministic perhaps overly uh, a left realist position in in, anal- in analysis in looking at international affairs. but in the case of nuclear weapons, the individual personalities of rulers starts to matter a great deal. And then we, we, we have to pay attention to, to characteristics. And then the thought of, of, of Putin and, and an elderly Biden <laughs> and uh, the other stock of world leaders being responsible for these questions also is
1: something which is really quite troubling. Tom Stevenson, thank you very much. Thank you. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt.